Good morning, everybody. <coughs> I never quite understood on that song. I love that song. I think it's a off flyway. You realize that we're celebrating dying, don't you? But uh, it always, uh, why do they say in the morning? In the morning. It's like you can't die in the afternoon or what's the deal? Anyways, no one else struggles with this kind of stuff, but I, 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 my brain just gets wrapped up. What are you going to do? We are going to actually get back into the book of Colossians today. We, we, we left that go about, what, three months ago. It's been a long time. I missed the book of Colossians. Uh, fantastic book. Um, I don't read business journals and magazines very often. Truth is, I never read them. I don't think I've read one in my life. I'm just not very business-oriented. But uh, this week, in preparation for this message, I happened to kind of gravitate into that area. And I read this really interesting article on um, uh, Bernie Madoff. Remember that guy? Ripped off $50 billion or something from people. Uh, best Ponzi scheme ever uh, until he got caught. And um, it, was a, it was asking the question, why is it, apparently in the last year that he was uh, doing his shtick, uh, there was pretty clear evidence that this was a scam. And that there was even rumors that he was being investigated and things like that. But very few people pulled out. And I was asking the question, why is that? Uh, very bright people, smart people, wise people, savvy, and yet... Even when there's clear indications that this was a scam, there's evidence of it all over the place, and there's rumors that he's being investigated, they uh, stayed in the game. Uh, in fact, some continue to invest more and more money and getting other friends to invest more and more money. And the answer is, as to why these folks didn't pull out, is that um, the dream of having the payoff that he promised them was just uh, so good, that they, and they wanted it so badly to be true that they were willing to overlook all this evidence to the contrary. Their little greed got in there, and they, they wanted that payoff. And to pull out uh, midstream means you'd lose some of your money, um, and you wouldn't get that payout. Of course, staying in the game meant that they lost everything. But they're willing to overlook uh, the clear indications that um, this was a scam. And it, it just goes to show that sometimes when we, when we want something so badly to be true, well, we just sort of overlook everything else to make it true. Uh, it's called the reality principle, and it's, it's a, apparently a concept that operates in business. Uh, and, and the principle says this, that unless you are seeing reality clearly, or if you're seeing reality clearly but refuse to accept it, then you're going to be living in contradiction to reality, and reality always has a way of winning. Reality, uh, sooner or later, comes back to bite you. You end up experiencing pain and failure, and it, it's, it stresses the importance in business decisions but it applies in a lot of other ways. The importance of, of uh, uh, looking at reality as it is, trying to stay objective, trying to stay rational, trying to get an accurate assessment, uh, and, and not letting what you want to be true or what you're habitually uh, thinking is true get in the way. We've got to see reality for what it is. And a lot of it comes down to who do you trust, because in most areas of life, you've got to trust other people in terms of the, the experts and stuff to tell you what is real, the reality principle. It applies... In a lot of different ways. In psychology, they say that you could define a healthy mind as one that's willing to look at reality, uh, whatever, um, w w whether you like it or not. You're willing to wrestle with things as they are instead of 
uh, trying to live in a world that you wish was true. Whereas an unhealthy mind, uh, a mind that's gravitating towards neurosis, is one uh, that uh, that lets you're wishing something to be true, be true. You act as though that is true because that's what you want. It applies to uh, Christianity. C.S. Lewis said this, or something like this. I couldn't find this quote, but I know he said it. Mary's been questioning me, but I know I read it. I just can't remember where, and I couldn't find it. But it goes something like this. Uh, I, I, I thought it was a mere Christianity, but I almost read the whole thing again, and I could not find it. But I know it's somewhere. We don't get to decide what is real. The whole business of life is learning how to like what God has made real, or, or how God defines reality. And that really is what this is all about. Who gets to define reality? Who are you going to trust for reality? And will you get your life to line up with what is real? C.S. Lewis is right about that. You can really define Christianity as the, as the call to uh, submit to God's definition of what is real. The call to submit, to, to get your own thinking and mind and heart to line up with what God says is real. And you could define sin as the refusal to do that. The refusal to trust that what God says is true is actually true. And so Paul says in Romans 14 that whatever is not of faith is sin. And I think this is what he's getting at. When we don't trust that what God says is true, it it really is sin. We're living in contradiction to reality. Look at the story of Adam and Eve. God says, here's what's real. If you eat of the tree, you die. But the serpent comes along and deceives Eve and gives her an alternative reality. And in this alternative reality, if you eat of that tree, you become wise, like God. You can improve your lot. And so now she's living and acting, thinking in contradiction to what is real. And the reality principle applies. Boom, when you live in contradiction to reality, uh, you're like a person who's jumping off a cliff, pretending that the law of gravity doesn't apply to him. But you find out in about three seconds that it does. And so they're banished from the garden. And that, that is the judgment of God. The judgment of God is simply the natural, negative, destructive consequences that happen when you live in contradiction to reality. And God, in his mercy, works to, to protect us from the consequences of our, of our rebellion as long as possible. But there can come a time where God sees that he has no choice but to let us go. And with a grieving heart, as Jesus grieves over Jerusalem as he's riding into it, with a grieving heart, God lets people go their own way. And experience the consequences of that. Another C.S. Lewis quote uh, is, he says, there's two kinds of people in this world. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those that, to whom God says, all right, have it your way. And he lets them go their own way. And that's, that's the ultimate judgment of God. You see that in Romans 1. God gives them over to a reprobate mind. It really is all about reality. And so I want to talk about the reality principle here this morning. Um, and how important it is to frame all the teachings of Scripture uh, in, 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 in this context of the reality principle. And how it is important it is to frame our life in the context of this, this reality principle. The question is always, who do you trust to define what is real? Uh, before I get into Colossians, I want to review a uh, teaching that we have done here frequently about faith, because it's so foundational. And then I'm going to review a little bit of what we said last week, because the reality principle applies to 2 Corinthians 5. Before I get there, uh, well, the title of this, by the way, is, is called Getting Real, because it's about getting our life to line up with what is real. There's the title, and I want to pray. So Abba, Father, I thank you for your presence here in this auditorium, and um, 
I, I pray, God, for everybody in this auditorium and those who are listening by podcast or television or any other means, that, Father, you open our hearts and minds to receive your word and help us, God, to see truth and to have a faith that what you say is true, even if it conflicts with our own experience, even if it conflicts with everything other people have told us, to be a people of faith who align our lives in accordance with what you say is true, and then encourage others to do the same. Be present here, Lord. Be present in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. The teaching on Hebrew one, Hebrews 1 is this. It says that faith is the substantiating of things hoped for. This is the Darby translation, which I uh, think is, is, in this case, the most accurate. Faith is the substantiating of things hoped for and the conviction uh, of things unseen. Uh, the word substantiating there is hypostasis. It means substance, reality. Faith is the making real, making as a substance the things that are hoped for, things you've been promised, and the conviction, that should be uh, elegkos, um, not elegies, elegkos, of things unseen. What, what, what the passage is saying is that when God tells us what is true, what is real, and faith is the, the way we do faith on the inside is we see it as a substantial reality. We envision it. It's about a vision. It's about our imagination. And, and we see it as a reality because we trust that what God says is true. We now look for it and we envision it. And that, that envisioning creates in us a motivation, a conviction that it is so, which motivates us to walk in a certain direction, to live a different kind of a life. Hebrews 11, all those heroes of faith that you find there, it's all about them living this out. They see, it says several times in that chapter, they saw the promise of God. They saw what was before them. And so they set out in search of that city that's not of this world. We sang about it two songs ago. Uh, that we, we see the church arising, and we see the people of God, we see people, families being healed. That's about faith. It's in a, a vision, substantiating uh, what, what has been told us. It is the foundation of what uh, this Christian walk is all about. Believing that what God says is true, and so we envision it, and that motivates us to live in a different way. And this whole message is about how important it is that we make space in our life to be practicing that. Uh, to be to be living it out. That leads me to uh, the, the passage we dealt with last week, Second Corinthians chapter five. Uh, powerful passage that's still burning in my heart. It starts with Paul saying in verse seven, of chapter five, Second Corinthians, that we walk, we live by faith, not by sight. And the word that's actually used there is we walk by faith, and um, it, it means our whole life, but I want the, 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 the literal walking is important in this case because it shows how it's a process. It's a step-by-step thing that we're supposed to do. Every step we take, we're supposed to be practicing faith, exercising faith. Faith isn't something that you can do in one moment and then, and then let it go the rest of the day. No, if you have faith, you are faithing. It's a verb. You see, it's, it's, a, it's something we're to be involved in, and it's about envisioning what God says is true. And so what Paul is saying is that we're to walk in a way where we are constantly, in our minds, envisioning what God says is true. He says there in, in this, this chapter that he's explaining why he looks crazy. He says, if some people think I'm crazy, and some people did think he was crazy, because from a normal perspective, he did look crazy. He walked away from a good life, could have had a comfortable life, a prestigious life, but he gives it all up when he meets Jesus. 
And he spends the rest of his life suffering as he's serving people and spreading the gospel and setting up churches. And to a normal point of view, that looks crazy. And so Paul explains why he lives this way. And he says, he says, the love of Christ compels me. I'm compelled. It's a strong word. I have a strong motivation. I, I, I cannot do otherwise, given the love that he has for Christ and the love of Christ in him for others. And so he's motivated. And, and the reason he's motivated, he tells us in this chapter, is because of something he sees. A leg cost, right? That motivation. He, there's a hypostasis that he sees, a substantial reality. It's the promise of God. And that motivates him to live a life that looks crazy to others because it's a, a life of crazy love, as we said last week. Paul sees something that others can't see. He, say, he says that uh, we no longer look at the world from a worldly point of view, using that word sarks, worldly. And it means looking at the world just in terms of the here and now, just in terms of the physical, the normal way. What is real is what you can see. Paul says we once looked at the world that way, we once looked at Christ that way. But we do, we do so no longer. We walk by faith, not by eyesight. We walk by what we see, what we envision in our mind in accordance with what God says is true. And when Paul does that, he says this, we are convinced, and he, it's a beautiful reality that he sees, outstanding reality that it's so good as i said last week people have trouble accepting it he says if one died we are convinced this is what we see this is our conviction if one died for all then all have died praise god and and what he sees is that the old is gone because of christ's death and resurrection the old is gone the new has come behold all things are new what paul sees is that as all were in adam so all are now in christ What Paul sees is that everything about everyone that separated them from God has been nailed to the cross. And now God is breathing new life into the world, praise God. He's breathing new freedom into the world. He's changed everyone's status, praise God. He's enveloped every human being. He's got a bear hug of love around every person on this planet. And when Christ went to the cross, it's as though he squished everybody into him. And so also when he went down in the tomb and when he came up out of the tomb, Everything has changed. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's guaranteed salvation because God doesn't coerce people into a loving relationship. You can't coerce people into a loving relationship. Uh, it doesn't, people are free to reject reality. We do it all the time. We're free to reject reality, and eventually we crash up against it, and that is the judgment of God. But Paul sees that this doesn't change the beauty of the truth. This magnificent, spectacular, fantastic, mind-boggling, beautiful vision of, of a God whose love embraces all people and encompasses all people on Calvary. And as Paul sees that beautiful reality, as he, as he substantiates that in his mind, he has a vision of, of this. Uh, he sees everybody in light of this. It moves, it fills him with this love, this, this, this crazy love that leads him to live a crazy life. If we're going to live that kind of life, we've got to see what Paul sees or what Paul saw, and that's about practicing faith. It's about envisioning, getting our mind to line up in accordance with what God says is true. And so in light of that, let's look at Colossians, because we're going to see Paul reiterating the same point. We left off, I think, around verse 7, but I want to go back to verse 1, and because it's all one thought here. These first 10 verses of Colossians chapter 3. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, if, or can be sensed, because Paul's not asking a question, it's a statement. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, or since you have been raised up with Christ, as a statement about what is real, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, 
Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on this earth. Paul's using this metaphor of above and below, but he's talking about two different dimensions. He's, he's saying, don't just let the physical world define what is real for you. You are with your mind to see something else, what is above, the, the, the spiritual dimension. Don't look at the world from a worldly point of view. See with the eyes of faith. Resolve it. Set your mind on things above, uh, on this truth that God has revealed, not on things that are on this earth. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. All statements about reality. Here's what's real, as God defines it. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And then Paul says, therefore, in light of that, because that is what is real, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Since you are dead, consider yourself dead. Think about yourself dead. (laughs) This is what God defines as as real. Get your mind to line up with it. See it. Envision it. Have faith. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. You eventually crash up against reality if you're living in contradiction to it. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its, practice, with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Oh, powerful stuff in, the, in this passage. Man, this is... God defines what is real and our job is to, is to get our minds to line up with it. Do you see the funky way that Paul speaks here? It, it characterizes all of his letters. Uh, he, he, he gets his tenses wrong. <laughs> On the one hand, he says, uh, you, know, you have put aside your old self. But then he says, put aside all the behaviors of the old self. But wait a minute, you just said that we already did that. And now you're saying we have to do it again. And he says, since you have laid the old self aside, do not lie any longer. But see, if we already have laid it aside, why do you have to tell us not to lie any longer? It's this already not yet tension that runs throughout all of his, his, his writings. And it's because Paul is saying that in a sense, you are already this stuff, but in another sense, you're not. In a sense, what God defines as real, it's all done. It's accomplished. You are dead. You are raised. You are hidden in Christ. But in terms of your experience, how you see the world and, and, and how you live in it and how you experience it, well, you're still in the process of catching up to what is real. It's all a matter of becoming who you already are. You know, when, when, when Paul says that, um, he says, put off immorality and impurity and, and put off passion and evil desire and greed and lying. When you hear that, it'd be easy. In fact, I think most people hear a bunch of rules. It, it sounds like he's, he's giving us all rules, like, uh, you know... Uh, like God's no fun. All the fun stuff, put aside. Here's the rules. Here's the do's and here's the don'ts. And then when you have that conception, then God becomes sort of the supreme behavioralist. God, God is a God who's just very concerned with behavior. More than people. He's just into behavior. And, and so he's like a cosmic Santa Claus. And, and if, you're, if you're good and have the good behavior, well, then God will reward you with heaven. But if you're bad and have the bad behavior, then God's going to punish you with hell. We could call this Santa Claus theology. And then there are people who come along and say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right, because, uh, because look at the, Paul himself tells us over and over again that we're saved by grace alone and by faith alone. So, so then some teach that, that the only thing that matters is that you believe in Jesus, and if you believe in Jesus, well, then you're covered by the blood, and, and God can't see your sin like he's got bad eyesight or something. Um, 
And we could call that a cheap grace theology. And it's a reaction to the Santa Claus theology. And see, the thing is, is both the Santa Claus theology and the cheap grace theology, both of them miss this uh, uh, reality principle. They don't see the big picture, how it's all being framed. Both the Santa Claus theology and the cheap grace theology are acting as though when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the only thing that changed was that he brought us some new rules, put off immorality. Or, in the case of cheap grace, he gave us a free pass on the rules. You know, I, I, I don't see you breaking the rules. But see, they, both of them miss the most important thing, and that is that, that, that uh, there's a new reality that has been brought into being. Jesus just didn't bring some new rules or a pass on the rules. When Jesus died on the cross and when Jesus rose from the dead, it changed everything, praise God. A new reality was spoken into, into being. There's been a, a new creation that has been brought about. The old creation has, ha, has, has passed away. It was nailed to the cross. And so Paul tells us this reality in Colossians when he says, You have died. You have been raised again. You, your life is hidden in Christ. And he tells us that reality in, in 2 Corinthians when he says, If one died for all, then all have died. Uh, the old is gone, the new has come. These are statements about reality. And, uh, and so that reality is all there by grace. It is all by grace alone. Of course we're saved by grace alone because it's God's grace that creates this new reality. And then we access that reality by faith alone. We benefit from that reality by faith alone. We could reject it, but God calls us to trust that what he says is true is true. And so that's about exercising faith. We, that, that's why Paul says, seek those things that are above. Set your mind on, on things that are above. We begin to enter into this process of salvation and transformation when we get our mind to line up with what God says is true. That's faith. And when we begin to, we, we, we walk in a way where we are seeing the truth of God, we, t- we take time to envision it. Uh, and, and, and to superimpose it on just the physical world. We don't look at the world any longer from a worldly point of view. We are to be a people who look at the world through the eyes of faith. What God says is true. And then as we, as we align with that reality, we're motivated then, as we see what God says is true, we're motivated then to begin to put off everything that's inconsistent with it and to put on everything that is consistent with it. See what I'm saying? So it's like this. God says that I am a, a new creation. We just read it. I am a new creation. The old has passed away. So I am by faith going to envision myself as a new creation. And I'm therefore going to strive to put off everything about myself that is inconsistent with that new creation. Uh, By grace, God says I'm filled with his love. And so I'm going to envision myself filled with that love. And so I'm going to live in a way where I'm putting off everything that's inconsistent with that love. All hatred, all animosity. God says, by grace, I am filled with peace. So I will access that by faith, envisioning myself as a person who's filled with peace. And therefore, I'll be striving to put aside, put, put off all violence, all hostility in my mind and in my heart and in my speech. Uh, God says that I am, by grace... Uh, given a spirit of courage, not a, a fear, but a, a courage and a sound mind. So I will envision myself as being filled with courage, and therefore I'll be putting off everything that's inconsistent with that, putting off all fear and, and everything else that could conflict with that. God says, I'm filled with truth, and so I'm going to envision myself as filled with truth, and therefore put off all lying and put off all deception. God says that I'm holy. Can you believe that? God and God's authority, I'm declared to be holy and blameless. And so I'm going to envision myself as holy and blameless and therefore be motivated to put off everything that's inconsistent with that holiness, all immorality and, and everything else. God says, I'm, I'm free 
whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And so I'm going to envision myself as free and therefore be motivated to be putting off everything that could possibly hold me in bondage. Uh, you ask, it's all by grace alone that you access by faith alone. And that's what motivates us then to live a life that will look crazy to the, the normal people. Those who look at the world through a, a, a worldly perspective. Faith is envisioning that what God says is true, regardless of what your experience says. Uh, you believe what God says is true, despite what your eyes see. You believe what God says is true, despite how you may feel about it. You, you, you resolve that God, what God says is true, even if every voice in your brain disagrees with that. That's why Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. Put God's authority above everything else. And that doesn't mean that faith is blind or irrational. Someone could be listening to this saying, oh, this is just another example of wishful thinking. But see, I've got, I've got very good reasons for believing that God exists. And I've got very, very good reasons, historical and philosophical and existential reasons for believing that Jesus is the definitive revelation of God. And, and so I, I, this is a rational faith. But once I decide, <clears throat> once I decide to put my trust, <clears throat> excuse me, put my trust <clears throat> in the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, now I resolve, I set my mind, resolve my mind to substantiate that, to see the world in that way, to envision truth, and therefore put off everything that is inconsistent with the truth. See, when Paul says put off immorality, put off impurity, all those things, that's not just some rules. All he's saying is live consistent with what is real. Live consistent with what is real. Don't live in contradiction to what is real. All those things will experience the wrath of God because they contradict what God says is real. And so reality will come back and, and, and you'll crash against it. Like a person jumping off a cliff thinking the law of gravity doesn't apply to them. But we are to be a people who align our heart and mind with the truth. We see it, we resolve it, and therefore we, we move towards it. We're motivated to live a different kind of a life. The, the struggle is that the brain is a creature of habit. And it's hard to change bad brain habits. Anyone here got bad brain habits? Yeah, oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It, 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 take, it takes resolve. That's why Paul says, set, fix your mind. It takes resolve. We, you have to walk in this. Paul says, we walk by faith. It, it doesn't happen just because just you do it once in the morning. And you know, There's no magic. This is discipleship. It takes work. Mary was telling me uh, about recently she was out shopping. Mary uh, Van Sickle, who was, did the announcements here, uh, she has in the last couple of years gotten smaller, a lot smaller. Um, but she was telling me how she was out shopping for some dresses and she just instinctively uh, got a certain size, the size that she's always got all of her life. She's gotten a certain size dress. And she, she collected a couple that she wanted to try on. She takes them back uh, to the room and the clerk looks at the dresses and looks at her and says, ma'am, uh, you got the wrong size. Uh, you're much smaller than this size dress. And it was just, Mary says she got choked up by it because she realized that she... She still thinks according to the old Mary. Uh, she, you know, she needs to get real, get in touch with what is real, and that, that things have changed. There's a new you, and so put off the old self and put on the new. But it's a challenge. Uh, the brain is a creature of habit, bad brain habits. So that's what we're up against. You know, I, when I, I always thought I was dumb growing up. Everyone else thought I was dumb. I, I was in all the classes. You know, they, they had different levels. I was always in the lowest, lowest reading, lowest math. Lost everything. Me and three other kids. We were the dumb kids in the class. And I stuttered terribly. Uh, I, I, so even if I knew the answer to a question, which I usually did, but I, I looked stupid because I would 
stutter uh, answer out and people couldn't understand it. And I was hyperactive, so I got in a lot of trouble and later on got into all sorts of drugs, which certainly didn't help my class performance at all. I just was, I, I, I just was checked out. I was, everything bored me, and so I didn't pay attention to anything. And so I looked dumb. I thought I was dumb. I was convinced I was dumb. Then I discovered philosophy in 11th grade, middle of 11th grade. And for the first time, my brain found something worth thinking about. Uh, for the first time, there was something that interested me. Uh, I don't believe I read a single book cover to cover up to that point in my life. A few books I you know, would do a little bit, but I, I hated reading. Hated it. I get the same book report on the same book four years straight. <laughs> and I didn't even read that book. <laughs> so my, my older sister told me about it. It was, it was uh, I hated it. But now I discovered philosophy and I, I couldn't believe that people wrote, this is the stuff that I always thought about. I thought I was just kind of crazy. And here people write books on it. And so I, I began to devour books like Being in Nothingness by Jean-Paul Sartre or Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard. I just got crazy reading all this stuff. And my brain came alive. And I started getting straight A's. Or almost straight A's. And I, I, it just felt weird. I, it felt, I felt like I was somehow faking it or... Or it just shows how, how eroded uh, the, the school system is, how, how low the bar has been set. Then I went to the University of Minnesota, and at least in all of the classes that dealt with philosophy or anything related to that, I would get all A's and I would get accolades. The professors would say all these great things, but I thought it was a fluke. I thought, man, the American educational system is just really uh, you know, eroded. Look how poor it is. Then on the encouragement of a professor, they wanted me to apply to Yale, and I thought that was stupid. How could I ever get into Yale? But I get into Yale, and I, and I go there, and I start getting straight A's. And I was saying to myself, who would have thought? Even the Ivy League schools are eroded. <laughs> Education's just going to pot all over the place. It was they had a, a graduate student there uh, do this experimental IQ test. She wants some volunteers for this new kind of IQ thing. And so about 30 of us volunteered. And uh, I got 156 on it. And to me, that just proved how, and I didn't know what that meant, but she says, oh, you're in the 99th, 99th percentile. I thought, man, that is a really screwed up IQ test. It's just, and it was only when I, one morning, snuck into, the, the, the professor used to put the, our, our papers out after he graded them in these cubby holes in this one building, and I snuck in there early in the morning, he'd handed out the papers the night before, and uh, I wanted to read some of the other uh, students, their papers. And uh, so I picked out these three smart kids, they seemed like the super, super smart kids, uh, and, and I wanted to read what they, they got. I, I had an A, and he put some accolades on the paper, outstanding, whatever, and so then I read their paper, and they got A's, but they didn't get accolades. And I read it, when I read them, they weren't that good. And that was the first time I thought, maybe I'm not that stupid. Now, you get me out of theology, and I'm an idiot. <laughs> but in theology, at least, there's one thing that I'm, I think I can do. You see, I had bad brain habits. It's hard. It takes a lot of, of, of intentionality to change our neural nets the way that they've always been popping. But this is the challenge of faith, to take what God says is true and to see it even if it conflicts with everything else in, in, in your experience. So the pattern we find throughout Paul's writings and in other writings as well, the pattern we see is, is that Paul will first state what is real, then he'll state, he'll encourage us to have faith in what is real, to trust it, to see it, and then he encourages us to live in it. All over the place. So here in Colossians, we're seeing, he says, you're, you're dead, you, you, you died, you were raised, your life is hidden, hid, hidden in Christ. 
And then in Corinthians, he says, here's what's real. Uh, that one died for all, so all have died. You have died. And, and the old is gone, and the new has come. As all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. That's what's real. Now, secondly, he says, have faith in that. See that. Walk in that. Envision that. Make a substantial reality out of, out of what is true about you and what is true about others. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you envision this. Superimpose on the physical world the truth of God. Seek those things that are above, he says in Colossians. Uh, uh, set your mind on those things. And then he tells us to live it. Now that we're seeing it, live it. So put off the behaviors that are no longer true about you. They were true of the old self, but they're not true of the new self. And as we can see the beauty of what God says is true, it motivates us to live in that direction. Motivates us to get our life in alignment with what God has already said is true. That's the faith walk. Who are you going to trust to tell you what is real? Who are you going to trust? And this whole thing is about the call on us to trust God over our own damaged brains. Trust God over what uh, mom and dad said. Trust God over what uh, the experience of the world says. Trust God over how you feel. Let God be true and every man a liar, every woman a liar, every thought a liar, every experience a liar, whatever doesn't agree with God, let that be a lie because this is what is true. However outlandish, however crazy it feels. You got to have a crazy beauty vision if you're going to be living a crazy beautiful life. So let's end with this. I want to do a, a little exercise here. Um, we, you guys, it, it, it comes down to this. If we do this, if we take the time and are intentional about walking in faith and envisioning this, uh, it's only to the degree that we do that that we access the reality of what God says is real. And that's what brings about the transformation in our life. The more we do that, the more we experience it, the more it feels true, the more alignment there is. But the converse is also true. The reality principle is that if we don't do it, well, to that degree, we're going to be living in contradiction to the truth as God defines it. And so to that degree, the things that God says are true are going to feel unreal to us. It's going to feel artificial, and our life isn't going to manifest it. So everything hangs on our committing ourselves to do this, to practice this. I, 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 want, to, I want you to commit to practicing this at least once a day. Uh, I, I, the morning, I think, is the best time before you, the day gets all busy. And then to, uh, to, the goal is to, to cultivate this to be a habit, to form a new habit where you're always seeing the truth. And the truth about God, the truth about you, the truth about others, the truth about all creation. All things are new. Can you see it? All things are beautiful. Can you see it? And so I want to do an exercise uh, about the truth about us. And it looks something like this. I'll give you my example, then I'll lead us in this exercise. Uh, one episode came to mind as I was thinking about this. It was something that happened about 15 years ago where I had to go into a room of 70 authorities, uh, and I was on trial, so to speak, uh, over my theological beliefs. Some were alleging that I was a heretic because I think possibilities are real, the open view of the future. We had a conference about it here uh, this last uh, few days, and it was wonderful. Uh, but I was on trial for this, and I had to go face 70 authorities, and my job was on the line. And, and even the church was on the line because they were going to take us off the denominational roles. Like, you guys would really, you know, cry over that. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> So, so I could have been very nervous, and I kind of was at first. But I, the morning of this thing, and I was told ahead of time that there's at least five people who really had it in for me. They, they, they wanted to bury me, uh, one of them being a, a pretty well-known theologian. So that morning, I just envisioned myself. The Bible promises me that I have a perfect peace that passes all understanding. 
That, that is, that, that's what's real about me. And so I envision myself uh, going into that, that, that room and facing those 70 authorities and being full of peace and being filled with love. And I envisioned them. I didn't know what they, they were going to look like, but I envisioned them hurling you know, arguments at me and stuff. But I envisioned me responding in a very peaceful, calm way. Because that is the true me, you see. And, and um, as I did that, I, I, I felt a sense of peace about it. And then even as I was walking into uh, this room, we're to walk by faith. You can be envisioning this stuff as you're going about your everyday life. We have to be envisioning this stuff as we go about our everyday life. But I just still envision myself as I really am. I saw myself responding peacefully to various arguments and accusations. And so as they were coming at me, I just felt very calm. And it's amazing how much better you can think when you're calm. And yeah, things come to you. You know, this very calm. No, some of them didn't stay calm. <laughs> they need some spiritual exercises, but, but I was feeling calm. So right now, I want you to think, and Holy Spirit, help us here. I, think about what, what is the worst, your worst trait? What, what is the attribute that is the least Christian part of you? What part of you is least Christ-like? Now, I know for some of you, it's going to be really hard to find, but, but, but search hard. Is there an attitude or a behavior or something in your life that really is not in sync with what God says is true about you? You got it? And now think about a recent episode where um, you manifested that trait. Just remember it. Remember it as vividly as you can. Maybe you lost it. You threw something. You went on a cuss streak. Uh, maybe you fell into kind of unwarranted fear. Maybe you gave into a temptation. Okay, now you remember that now. Now I want us to ask the question, what is real? What is real? And envision now, what is the Christ-like attribute that should be there in place of the one that is now there? What is the, the opposite of this negative trait that you have? What would you look like if that was gone and, and you really were manifesting uh, Christ-likeness? And now can you redo that memory, that episode that you blew it in, but now see yourself responding the way you would if you were living in congruity with, with what God says is true about you? Do you see, just see it. And as you're seeing this, there is likely for some of us going to be a little voice in our head that says, come on, this is psycho gobbledygook. This is pop psychology. This is positive thinking or something. This is silly. But see, pop psychology tries to make you something that you're not by thinking about it. We're simply trying to get our thinking to line up with what we are on God's authority. And so we're just trying to align ourselves. And so we hear that voice, just calmly set it aside. That's just a, uh, that's part of your old self thinking. That's, that's a bad brain habit. Just set it aside and set your mind on what is true. This is what Paul's talking about. Envision this. Hypostasis. See it as a reality. And as you're seeing this, in your spirit say, that is the true me. That is the true me. And see it. Run it over. Make it as vivid as, as you can. Uh, substantiating is about making it as real-like as you can. See the reality that's there and say, that is the true me. And if you're doing this vividly, there should be a, a, something in you that, that a leg cost, that, that conviction that it is so. You want this. You know on some level, if you're a kingdom person, that this is what is true about you. 
And so then commit to moving towards that. Whatever you have to put off, whatever practices you have to put in place to step into that reality, commit to doing it. And next time something like this happens, commit to, by the power of God, by the grace of God, commit to manifesting the attribute that you're now seeing. This is faith, folks. And you can't do this too much. You can't do this too much. The truth is that we are faithing all the time. We are seeing stuff all the time. We're substantiating uh, uh, messages all the time. Your brain is always showing pictures and movies and soundtracks. And, and, And sadly, probably most of them are somewhat untrue. It's stuff that you inherited from the world. Our job is to take authority over that. Take every thought captive, Paul says. And uh, that requires great intentionality. And so uh, it's something I, I start by making a commitment to do it once a day. But I'm encouraging you to daydream about this all the time. Just see it. Just envision it. If you can't see it, you're never going to be manifesting it in your life. It's got to first start with faith. All right. I'll close in prayer, and as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer team to come up here. And if you're here and have any need whatsoever, uh, please come forward and pray with these folks. They're also available during the whole service. We really want to be a body that prays for one another and ministers to one another. Would you stand? I'll close with this benediction of sorts. As we leave here, people of God, people of God of Woodland Hills Church or those who are belong to some other church who are listening through podcast, I call on us to... Be a people who commit to seeing reality as God defines it, to seeing God as he's told us he truly is, as seeing ourselves as we truly are, seeing others as they truly are, seeing all of creation as it truly is. May we go out of here being a people of faith, committed to walking in faith, committed to living out faith, to put the glory of God on display, manifest his beauty to the world around us in Jesus' name. And all of God's kingdom people said... Amen. God bless you guys. Go out. Love on the world.